You're listening to a sermon from Darabin Presbyterian Church. Visit us online for more resources or to get in touch. Hi everyone. Uh, today's Bible reading has two sections. The first section is from Exodus chapter 20 verses 22 to chapter 21 verse 11. We'll read that section first. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her child shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife, and children do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive one, the first one, of her food, clothing and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. The second section um, from God's Word is Exodus 23, verses 10 to 19. For six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unploughed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what is left. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and so that the slave born in your household and the foreigner living among you may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you. Do not invoke the names of other gods. Do not let them be heard on your lips. Three times a year you are to celebrate a festival to me. 
celebrate the festival of unleavened bread for seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv for in that month you came out of Egypt no one is to appear before me empty-handed celebrate the festival of harvest with the first fruits of the crops you sow in your field celebrate the festival of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in your crops from the field three times a year all the men are to appear before the sovereign lord do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast the fat of my festival offerings must not be kept until morning bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the lord your god do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk Well, hi, DPC. Uh, I've got to say I'm pretty disappointed that we can't be together this afternoon uh, in person, uh, but we can still get around God's word together uh, and may God speak to us as we do that. Uh, so please do pray. Uh, pray with me, pray for me uh, as we look at God's word. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word uh, and we pray that even as we are apart physically, uh, that your spirit might take up your word and bring it home to our hearts and minds in such a way uh, that even in this moment, uh, we are changed by it. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, uh, hopefully you were tuned in as Warwick read that Bible reading, or at least parts of the passage we're looking at today. And I wonder if you were listening to, as you were listening to that passage, if you thought to yourself, is this part of the Bible really that useful? Uh, in 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Like the whole Bible, Paul says, is useful. It's profitable for us. Uh, but then we come to verses in today's passage, like Exodus 20, verse 26, where, where God says, uh, Do not go up to my altar on steps, or your private parts may be exposed. Kind of like, what's that about? Or Exodus 21 verse 6, which says that if a man wants to be his master's slave for life, for uh, permanently, his master shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. I know, I'm sure you're feeling most edified by that. It's so useful to you. Or Exodus 23 verse 19, which says, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Right, how on earth are these passages useful for us, right, profitable for us? Oh, well, I want to suggest today uh, that when we understand these passages in their context, they show us that a well-ordered community of love displays God's holiness, but a disordered community of love deserves God's judgment. That's my summary. A well-ordered community of love displays God's holiness, but a disordered community of love deserves God's judgment. And you might remember in Genesis 1 and 2, when God created the world, he brought order out of disorder. Right? But since Genesis 3 and our fall into sin, the, the disordered loves and desires of our hearts have caused disorder in our own lives and disorder in our communities, in our society. 
So having redeemed his people from their slavery in Egypt, God gives them these laws so that they can know how to live as a well-ordered community of love. A community that puts on display his holiness to all the nations around them, rather than a disordered community of love that is deserving of his righteous judgment. And of course, part of the reason why some of these laws seem so so strange and obscure for us is that God's law is given to a people living in a particular time and place. The Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 are a little bit like the timeless constitution for the people of Israel. Right, we see that in the fact that those words come directly from God himself, right? that they're not mediated through Moses. And we also see it in the fact that they're clear and direct and absolute commands about what is right and wrong. Whereas the laws we're looking at today in Exodus 20 verse 22 to 23 verse 19 are like specific applications of the Ten Commandments, right, to Israel who are living in a particular time and place. So Exodus 20 verse 22, if you take a look at that verse, you'll see that these laws are mediated through Moses. They're not received directly from God, they're different And you'll also see that they repeatedly use words like, if this happens, or whoever does this, or when this happens, right? Making it clear that these are specific applications of the Ten Commandments, right? Applications for Israel, who are living in a particular time and place. So with Israel being a largely agrarian community, it's not surprising to see lots of laws about livestock and land use and harvesting. And as God had promised Abraham in Genesis 12, uh, Israel has now become a great nation. Uh, So we see lots of laws about how to set up a nation, either the judicial system, for example. And Israel is headed towards the promised land. So there are lots of laws about how to use the land, land rights and property rights, and how to worship God faithfully among the other nations in the land. So that Israel remains, in their time and place, God's distinct and holy people. So we might look at some of these laws and think to ourselves, gee, that's a little bit regressive, a bit archaic. But we do have to remember that these laws are given to make Israel stand out as God's holy people in their time and place. They don't necessarily give us the ideal ethic for God's people in every time and place. So with all that in mind, because these laws are specific applications of the Ten Commandments, which we heard last week are about loving God and loving others, it's not surprising that these laws can be grouped under those two headings. So what I'm going to do now is take you on a bit of a whirlwind tour of the passage, right? So you can get a sense of how the whole lot fits together. So first, in chapter 20, verses 22 to 26, God calls his people to love him by worshipping him rightly. Now take a look at those verses. Right? This is a specific application of the second commandment. Remember, that was about worshipping the one true God as he has revealed himself by speaking. So in verse 23, in contrast to the nations around them, uh, Israel is not to make or worship any idols. 
of verse 24 looks forward to the full sacrificial system, reminding Israel uh, that if they want God to come to them and bless them in their worship, uh, they've got to offer a sacrifice in their place. Whether the animal bearing the punishment of death that they deserve for their sins. And in verse 25, well, we see what kind of altar those sacrifices are to be offered on. It's a very simple altar, right? Oh, ideally one just made of earth, uh, but if not, a single undressed stone. Uh, the point being that this altar shouldn't be some ornate creation of people that draws attention. But it's got to be clear that it's holy to the Lord, that the altar as a whole belongs to the Lord. And that theme of holiness continues in verse 26. Oh, there we see that the altar can't have steps because you don't want to expose your private parts. Which seems a bit strange, but the worship, of the, uh, the worship of the nations around Israel often did include nakedness. But even various ritual sex acts. But not Israel's worship. But Israel should love God by worshipping him rightly. And then we've got a, a long section describing how Israel should express their love for others. First, in chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, where we see that Israel is to love others by treating slaves with compassion and providing them with freedom. This is a, a clear application, not necessarily of a specific commandment, but of Israel's own journey of being freed from their slavery in Egypt. So in verses 1 and 2, unlike the nations around them, uh, Israel is not to have any permanent slavery. Right? Slaves are, are to be freed from their slavery every seventh year without making any payment. Uh, in verses 3 and 4, we see that, generally speaking, the wives and children of those slaves are also to be freed. Right? Unless the, the wife was given to the slave by their master, in which case they might be a very generous slave. Uh, a generous master, rather. So in verses 5 and 6, uh, the slave might decide to keep serving their master permanently. Uh, so he gives expression to that by getting that pretty weird ear piercing. But a sign of him uh, making an ongoing commitment, a permanent commitment, to listening to and obeying his master. What does this tell us? It tells us that it wasn't uncommon in Israel for a slave to be treated so well that they wanted to remain with their master for a lifetime. That's a bit countercultural, a bit of a different understanding to slavery that we might normally think of. In verses 7 to 11, there's something else that's a bit countercultural, which is that female slaves also had rights. Right, masters couldn't just sell their female slaves to some foreigners, right? If the female slave had married their son, uh, the master had to adopt that slave as their very own daughter. And if they hadn't married their son, the master had to provide for all their needs, uh, or they had to let them go free. You see, we don't really know why God didn't tell his people to just get rid of the institution of slavery altogether. Well, we don't know. Maybe God knew that slavery was so kind of ingrained in this culture, socially, economically, that to simply remove slavery would, well, it would probably cause more harm than good. Whatever the case, God did want to ensure that if any of his people were slaves, 
camps. They were treated with compassion and dignity and respect, and that they had the opportunity at least every seven years to secure their freedom. In chapter 21, verses 12 to 27, there's a whole section uh, about uh, how the Israelites can love others by not causing personal injury. This applies those commandments about, you know, you shall not murder or honour your father and your mother. But how is Israel supposed to administer justice when personal injury does happen? We'll take a look at verses 12 to 14. You see there that these laws helpfully distinguish between intentional and accidental injury. We also see that there's a, a general sense of equality under these laws. For example, from uh, verses 20 and 21, it's clear that these laws apply to all Israelites, right? both slave and free. Although I must concede, verses 26 and 27 seem to show that, that there is some distinction between slave and free. Right? The slave there who loses an eye isn't entitled to retribution, you know, an, an eye for an eye, but they are entitled to restitution. Right, to, to compensation for their injury, which really leads uh, to a key theme that, that's raised in this section of chapter 21 and that runs through this whole section, uh, which is that breaking God's law often demands just restitution. In verses 18 and 19, for example, where we read, uh, if a person, uh, if uh, people quarrel, uh, one per and one person hits another with a stone or with a fist, uh, and the victim doesn't die, uh, but is confined to bed. Uh, the one who struck the blow will not be held liable uh, if the other person can get up and walk around outside with a staff. However, the guilty party must pay the injured person for any loss of time uh, and see that the victim is completely healed. So if you injure someone and they're not able to work for a specific period of time, you've got to compensate them for that loss. You've got to pay just restitution. But these laws also make clear that often breaking God's law doesn't just demand just restitution, it also demands just punishment. So in verses 23 to 25, well, we've got those, well, we've got those fairly familiar words, at least for some of us. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Right? Israel is to love one another by not causing personal injury. Right? But even when they do injure one another, uh, there's got to be just restitution and just punishment. Uh, in chapter 21, verses 28 to 36, uh, there's a whole bunch of laws about animals, by not allowing animals to injure others and not injuring other animals. Uh, so if you scan those verses, you'll see verses 28 to 32 uh, are directions about uh, administering justice when animals injure humans. And in verses 33 and 34, it's about humans injuring animals. And in verses 35 and 36, it's about animals injuring humans. But in an agrarian culture, this is a big deal. It's a big deal for people's lives, a big deal for people's livelihoods. It's a key to, to maintaining a well-ordered community of love. Likewise with property. 
Uh, so in chapter 22, verses 1 to 17, that there's a whole bunch of rules about respecting people's property. Uh, verses 1 to 4 deal with stealing. Why right, obviously a breach of the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal. Uh, verses 5 and 6 deal with negligence. You know, your livestock damage someone else's crops, their vineyard, or you carelessly let a fire that you lit burn your neighbor's crops out. Which leads to verses 7 to 9, which deal with loss or damage of someone else's property. And verses 10 to 15, which deal with injury or death to someone else's animals. And I've actually included verses 16 and 17 in this section because they're also, at least to some extent, about a person or family experiencing loss. In the sense that if a father's virgin daughter is seduced by a man, uh, the father is to, to, to demand that that man marry his daughter and pay him a suitable bride price. Uh, this serves two purposes. One, uh, it shows just how much he, he really values the daughter. And two, it stops the family missing out on the bride price. It, it compensates them for their potential financial loss. If the man refuses to, to pay the bride price, the, the father is free uh, not to give his daughter away in marriage. And, and frankly, why would he want to give his daughter to a man who only wanted to seduce her and, and not really make a serious commitment to her? But Israel is to love one another by respecting one another's property rights. Uh, finally, from chapter 22, verse 18 to chapter 23, verse 19, uh, there's a long section in which we, uh, Israel is commanded to love God by both worshipping him rightly and by relating to others rightly. Right? Those two themes of right worship and right relating are kind of completely intertwined in this section, right? showing us, as we really see throughout the Bible, uh, that you just can't separate right worship and right relating to others. So if you take a look at verses 18 to 20, you see there that right worship of God involves not engaging in sorcery. Because we should only worship the one true God who is spirit. Why not be consulting with other spirits? And right worship involves no bestiality. I know maybe you think that goes without saying. Right, but this was actually to distinguish Israel from the surrounding nations, right? whose worship of their idols sometimes did include acts like this, right? supposedly to, to increase fertility. A bit weird for me. Right, and of course, uh, verse 20, we see that no sacrifices are to be offered to other gods. Right? This right worship of God should lead to right relating to others. Which, if you look at verses 21 to 24, it involves never mistreating those who are socially disadvantaged in society. The refugee, the widow, the orphan. And likewise, verses 25 to 27, it involves not mistreating those who are economically disadvantaged. Either those who are, who are particularly poor or particularly needy in some way. But notice that God says that if Israel mistreats these people, in his compassion he will hear their cries of distress, and in his anger he will judge his people. In verses 28 to 31, we return again to right worship. 
which of course in verse 28 involves not blaspheming or, or cursing God's appointed authorities. In verses 29 and 30, it involves not holding back any offering that rightly belongs to God. And the slightly strange command in verse 31 reminds the Israelites that if they want to draw near to their holy God, then they mustn't eat anything that is unclean. And so we return to right relating to others in chapter 23, verses 1 to 9. As an application of the ninth commandment about not bearing false testimony, verses 1 to 3 and verses 6 to 9 command the Israelites to testify truthfully about others and to be committed to pursuing justice for everyone. And then verses 4 and 5 apply those principles of justice with a command to help absolutely anyone who you're able to, even your enemy. Uh, and in verses 10 to 19, uh, the passage ends where it started, right, with directions about worship of God. Uh, verses 10 to 12, in light of the fourth commandment, a uh, command Israel to imitate God's pattern of Sabbath rest, right, on the seventh day and the seventh year. Uh, and notice the purpose is that everyone in the community might be refreshed. Verse 13, in light of the third commandment, a command Israel not to dishonor God's name by invoking the names of other gods. And in verses 14 to 19, well, we see that Israel essentially is to live all of life in remembrance of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Right? They do this by, by observing a, a kind of cycle of annual feasts. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which includes the Passover, helped Israel to remember what God had done in redeeming them from their slavery in Egypt. Uh, and of course, within that festival, uh, if you look down at verse 18, they're, uh, they're not allowed to offer God anything that contains yeast. Right To remember just how quickly they had to leave Egypt. And then there's the Feast of Harvest, sometimes known as Pentecost. And that happened 50 days after the Passover. But this reminded the Israelites to give thanks to God for, for how he was faithfully providing for their every need. So if you look at verse 19, they're to offer the first fruits of their harvest to God as a sign that the, really the whole harvest was a gift from him. And finally, there's a feast of ingathering or tabernacles, which actually involved the Israelites building little temporary huts or tabernacles out in the field. So as the Israelites gathered in their crops of olives and of grapes, they were reminded of how God provided for them when they were in the wilderness and when they lived in their temporary tents and when God tabernacled with them. So verse 19, right, knowing that it's their God who's the giver of all life, the provider of every good gift, uh, the Israelites should not resort to the superstitions of the nations. By the nations who thought that if you boiled a young goat in its mother's milk, right, its source of life, uh, then your whole flock of goats would be more fertile. So there you go, right? Uh, that was a bit of a whirlwind, a whirlwind tour of the whole passage. But I hope you can get a sense 
that the overall purpose of this passage is to apply those Ten Commandments, loving God and loving others. It's to help Israel be established as, as a well-ordered community of love. A community that loves God rightly, that loves others rightly. A community that, that, that displays God's glory and beauty and holiness to the nations that Israel lives among. But of course, God anticipates in the very passage that in their sin, his people are more likely to be a disordered community of love. A community that often fails to love him and love others. And so... They are deserving of his righteous judgment. But still, you might say, well, so what? You know, as a Christian, I'm no longer under God's law. So what's the point of all this? And in some sense, there's a truth in that. Right? After all, in John 1 verse 17, we read, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Or in Romans 6 verse 14, Paul says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. But it seems clear well, that these laws are no longer relevant. But on the other hand, in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 21, Paul says, To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Although I'm not free from God's law, Paul says, but I am under Christ's law. And in James 2 verse 8, James says, If you really keep the royal law that is found in Scripture, love your neighbour as you love yourself, then you are doing right. So how do we put this together? What is the place of laws like this, of God's law, in our lives as Christians? Well, the first thing we've really got to be clear on is that Jesus' death on the cross fulfills the law's demands for just punishment and just restitution. You remember those two themes running through this whole passage we've looked at today, just punishment being about a punishment equal with the crime that's been committed, and just restitution being about restoring what was damaged or lost in a particular crime. So what about our crimes against God, our rejection of God, our rebellion against God? Well, surely those crimes have got to have just punishment and just restitution. And of course, in the big story of the Bible, we see that those two themes of just punishment and just restitution really come together in the death of Jesus. It's Jesus who pays the just punishment for our sins, for a punishment equal with the crime of rejecting God, that the source of all life is death. And Jesus bears that just punishment in our place on the cross. To use the language of Exodus 22, bruise for bruise, wound for wound, life for life. Jesus bears the just punishment in our place. Uh, but of course, this section of Exodus also shows that even when the just punishment for sin has been paid, uh, there's often still a need for restitution, right? for something that was lost or damaged to be restored. Right? And Jesus' death on the cross achieves that too, doesn't it? Uh, because when you put your faith in Christ's death on the cross, you're not only cleansed of your guilt and your sin and your shame, uh, you're also clothed 
in Christ's innocence and perfection and glory. So just as this section of Exodus begins with the wonderful truth that God brings freedom to those who are enslaved. And it ends with the wonderful truth that God brings rest to those who are weary. So also Jesus' death on the cross, which pays both the just punishment and just restitution for your sins and my sins, makes it possible for us to experience a spiritual freedom and rest. The freedom and rest that comes from knowing that you don't have to obey God's law to free yourself, to save yourself, to prove yourself to God. Because Christ already obeyed God's law for you, right, in your place. And that he died for all your disobedience to God's law. So as Paul says in Romans 6 verse 14, you are not under the law as a means of saving yourself. You are under God's grace. But even though you don't have to obey God's law to secure your freedom in Christ, you do have to obey God's law as you live out your freedom in Christ. But which parts of God's law? I mean, surely I'm not saying, I'm definitely not saying that you've got to be concerned about how you boil your, you know, young goat. Well, this brings us to what I've called a mostly helpful threefold division of God's law. I say mostly helpful, but because as we've seen, it's pretty hard to neatly divide God's law into three different categories. But overall, I think it's helpful. So first, you've got what you might call a, a whole lot of civil laws right, about how God wants Israel to live as a nation. Laws about land use and property rights and crimes, uh, sorry, uh, punishments for particular crimes. But of course, these laws aren't binding on us as Christians, but because God's people are no longer a single nation. We're scattered among many nations. The physical kingdom of Israel under God as king uh, is fulfilled in the spiritual rule of God under Christ as king. Likewise, there are a bunch of religious laws in these passages about how God wants Israel to worship him. Directions about altars and sacrifices and feasts and festivals and soon a whole bunch of stuff about priests and temples. But these laws aren't binding on us as Christians either. Because they're fulfilled in Christ's death on the cross. Remember, it's Christ who's the ultimate temple and priest and sacrifice. So third, we've got God's moral law. By principally the Ten Commandments. By these are the laws uh, that show us how God wants his redeemed people to live uh, this, uh, as a well-ordered community of love, really in every time and place. Why don't I say as every time and place, in every time and place, but because as Christians, God's, God's gone to all the trouble of writing these laws on our hearts by the power of his Spirit. Now let's join some dots here, right? In Exodus 20 to 24, 50 days after Israel is redeemed from Egypt by the blood of the Passover lamb, God's glorious presence came down upon Mount Sinai, and the result of that well, it was God writing the Ten Commandments on two tablets of stone. 
But in Jeremiah 31, while one of the key promises of God's new covenant, his new relationship with his people, is that one day he would write his law not just on stone tablets, but on the very hearts of his people. So that they can actually live in a way that pleases him as a well-ordered community of love. And that's actually what happens in Acts chapter 2. But at Pentecost, 50 days after the death of Christ, the ultimate Passover lamb. In Acts chapter 2, God's glorious presence comes down upon his people by the power of his spirit. And the result is that his law is written on the hearts of his people. Which is why if you read through the New Testament, you'll see that almost every commandment of those ten commandments is reiterated as important for Christians to obey. But by God's grace to us in Christ, by the indwelling power of God's Spirit, I pray that we can keep living as this well-ordered community of love. A community in which we love God rightly and love others rightly. And that in so doing, we might put on display to the world around us in incredibly attractive and transforming ways are the glory and beauty and holiness of our God. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. Uh, we do ask, Father, that by the power of your spirit, uh, you, might, uh, you might make us all the more a well-ordered community of love, a community that loves you and loves others rightly in a way that puts on display your holiness to those around us, in ways that are incredibly attractive and transforming. For the glory of our Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.